Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. So uh, Amberly and I and the kids had the privilege of going up to New Mexico. One of Amber's brothers uh, just recently took a job over this past summer working at Los Alamos, New Mexico, and so as an engineer. And so we got to, this is our first time to go visit them and their new place. And so it was fun to go up there and, and learn about the area a little bit. And even growing up in New Mexico, you know, you don't know, we just still don't talk about Los Alamos because everything's uh, a, a secret up there. But anyways, it was fun to go and, and see the area that it's in and kind of hear a little bit of the backstory. And actually, while I was there, I got so interested in some of the backstory and and thinking about, now, I'm not really sure I know this or that about the Manhattan Project. So I started a book called 109 East Palace. And it's just fascinating. That was like the secret address that they had in Santa Fe. They never had an address in Los Alamos, you know, in those early days. And so everything went through Santa Fe. And if you were going there, whether you were an MP or whether you were a, an engineer or a physicist or whether you were a pediatrician, you went and, and that you thought you were going somewhere else. And you ended up in Santa Fe, and then they took you up the mountain to Los Alamos. So just fascinating. But I love the story of how that whole place came about. And, and I think of it as you know, this was a place that in the mid-1930s, late 1930s, you know, Sweetwater was a bustling little community, and Los Alamos, there was nothing. I mean, there was this tiny little boys' school and nothing else. And by the early 40s and mid-40s, you got 3,500 people there by the end of the war working to, of course, try to end the war, you know, to try to win the war and get this thing over with. So you have this, this, these folks that are motivated by science, their love for science, and also motivated by the thing that we were all motivated in if you were alive back then, which was getting this over as quickly as possible and finding some sort of peacetime again. And so just how hard they worked is what fascinated me and how quickly they worked to establish the secret presence in the mountains in order to uh, win the war. You know, they, they established what they established because of the promise that they hoped for. They, they hoped for a promise that was peace again, and they thought that's what, that was the fastest way to get there. That was their little slice of the pie, and that was the orders that they had, and so that's what they did. And I, just you hear the story after story of all the passion that went into it. You can imagine the young, most of the physicists were in their mid-20s, and you know they, people were just excited to work. They wanted to be the first ones there. They wanted to discover things first and so they talk about even you know they would they would ring the bell and close down the lab at night and and people would saw off the padlocks to go back in and work and they would sleep on cots to try to work longer just to discover more they wanted to get there faster and uh, so just everything's in full swing and all this passion and so I tell you that story not to advocate for or against the merits of uh, nuclear weapons. Uh, there were certainly some bad things that they did on the way there. Uh, you can imagine being a rancher in the area at the time, and when the MPs show up and say, no, we mean, mean it, you're leaving your land, and they say, no, we're not. So they start shooting holes in your water tanks and going, yeah, you are, you're leaving. Uh, it, was, it was a wild time, but they were there for a purpose, and they established what they established for the hope that they had. So that strikes me how quickly they mobilized, how they established something in the promise and the hope of what was to come, a future that they were banking everything on, uh, so they spent their lives to do that. In the text that was read for us today in the book of James, uh, James is asking the scattered church, the persecuted church, 
He's asking them to consider the promise that they have always had, but he's asking them to sort of rekindle their imagination, their hope in this promise. James is asking the church to consider the promise of the presence of Jesus, not just the presence of Jesus when they leave this mortal body and are reunited with Christ and the church in heaven, but he's asking them to consider the presence of Jesus now that would come to them and comfort them and strengthen them in a time where they were being persecuted, where it looked like they were on the bottom of the barrel and there was no way back to the top. And so James is painting this picture of how the humble will be exalted and the proud will be brought low. He's, he's giving them hope. He's giving them encouragement. And so he's telling them, in, in light of the future and the present promise of Jesus, you need to be patient. You, you know, he's telling them, look, I know you're being oppressed, and I know you want to murder your oppressors, which is the natural thing you want to do when you're being oppressed. He says, just be patient. Don't murder your oppressors. But remember that Christ will come and he will be a faithful judge. He will be a just judge. And for all of their injustices that they are exercising over you, they will be judged for that. James says they will not get away with that, so don't worry about it. Um, but you need to be patient and don't grumble against one another because the last thing we need is when you're trying to be the church is to fight against each other because he's like, I need you on, on, on all in both legs. You know, I need you standing up straight. I need you strong because that's what it's going to take to get through this. So he says, wait, wait for the promise. Hold on for the promise for the judge stands at the door. Along with this imperative in chapter 5 to be patient, James adds another imperative. And the imperative is to establish your hearts. So he's, he's talking to these rich oppressors who are, by fraud, taking, uh, taking from the people that are working for them. So there are people come to harvest their fields, and they're not paying them on time. They're not taking care of them. They're being fraudulent. And so James is saying, hey, you guys, so he's kind of changing audiences here. He says, y'all that are oppressing people, don't think you're going to get away with this, and I'm going to give you a chance now. You ought to quit that. You ought to straighten up. You ought to fix what you're doing. Uh, you, you, you need, it's like the Sermon on the Mount. James comes in and says, look, if you're storing up for yourselves all your hope in this life, it's not going to go well because it, someday moths are just going to take, have their way with all that stuff, all the luxuries that you've stored up. But he says, really, if you want to be wealthy, then you need to store up treasures in heaven. That's, that's what he's inviting them to do. He's extending this grace to these oppressors. And then he turns his attention in this paragraph uh, that was read for us, and he says, now my beloved brothers and sisters, right, he's talking to the church again. He says, listen, you guys hang in there. You need to be patient. And then he adds this imperative, establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. I, I read that, I don't know, sometime in the last year, and, I, and it just struck me. And I, I wrote it down on a yellow legal pad. And then I thought about it again the next week, and I wrote it down again, and then I found myself thinking about James sometime later, and I wrote it down again. And then this fall, uh, one of our adult Bible studies studied James, and our youth Sunday school class studied James, and I found myself writing it down again. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. I'm going, James, I don't know what you're talking about. Establish your hearts. But I love it. I want to find out what you're talking about. And so begin to think about it and study it. And he says, you need to be patient and establish your hearts because the coming of the Lord is at hand. You know, the presence of the Lord is, is here and at hand, and therefore, you ought to establish your hearts. You ought to strengthen your hearts. And 
this really occurred to me as a great theme for the Advent season because, and really the book of James as a whole is a great Advent document, and I've never really thought of studying that during this season, but it's a great document to, to have as we study uh, what it means for our hearts to be ready for the coming of Jesus. And so uh, it turns out that James is a great Advent companion during this time, and, and like I said, it's very, it makes sense you know, in his time with Jesus that he, there would be these echoes of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, don't, don't say what you're going to do, these elaborate plans, but just say, look, we'll do what we have time and space to do and what God allows us and enables us to do. Our life is a mist, it's a vapor, um, and, and really invites us to consider and take inventory of where our treasure is. You know, Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, and James has echoes of that. So establish your hearts in something worthwhile. Establish your hearts because the Lord is at hand or else your hearts are going to be at the mercy of everything else. You know, that's how I realized. I'm like, oh yeah, if I don't establish my hearts in this, my heart will be established for me somewhere else. That's how it works. That's how the muscle of the heart, the will, the longing, that's how it works. So which future, James invites us to consider, are we hoping in? Which future are we storing up treasure for? He, he lines out this idea for these rich oppressors. He says, look, you can have a luxurious life now at the expense of others, or you can amend your ways. And, and it sounds a lot like John the Baptist. You know, you can do that, or you can repent, and you can start storing up treasures in heaven. Uh, but it's your choice. And just know that one day there will be a reckoning. And so it's, a, it's an, an amazing thing that he's inviting them to uh, consider. And he's not, again, he's not criticizing people for having wealth or for being blessed in that sense. He's criticizing folks for taking that wealth and using it to harm others or gaining it at the expense of others who are being oppressed. That's the whole definition of what's going on with this, this fraudulent, rich group of folks in, in this text. Establish your hearts. So I got real interested in, okay, well, establish your hearts, establish your hearts. Where have I seen that before? Or is that, you know, do we see that in other places in the New Testament? So I started looking, and, and it's, it doesn't occur very often in the New Testament, but usually when it does occur, uh, it's God. It's this promise, like Paul saying, uh, he's, he's praying for the church, and he says, you know, may God uh, establish your hearts. May God establish you in his grace, et cetera, et cetera. So usually God is the actor in this in this. Uh, thing where we see it. But James only uses this word one time, establish. And he only uses it once. And he, he, you'll notice that we are the actors. We have been, it's a command. It's an imperative. Uh, Y'all establish your hearts. I'm still not positive what exactly James meant by that, but I think we're getting kind of an idea. Establish your hearts. Strengthen your hearts. And I know a clue for me in the context is, is just immediately preceding this paragraph when he's uh, upbraiding the, uh, the oppressive, uh, the ones that are oppressing, he, he talks to them and he says, look, the, the, the people that you're oppressing, the cr their cries have been heard by God. And I just want you to know that God's listening and he won't, he's not going to sit idly by. And then uh, he comes in and says, now y'all have taken this time, this time when the Lord is at hand, uh, to fatten your hearts. And I, that, I was like, oh, that's the clue I needed. That makes sense to me. So the opposite of a, an established heart is a fat heart. And a fat heart is like, it's, it's the heart that just can't, you know, it's not able to receive and give like it needs to. And so it's this sluggish heart. And this, what we're looking for is a heart that's awakened, a heart that's established, that's able to receive and give and grow, be strengthened. 
And so we, we contrast this idea of a fattened heart with a, a lean heart that is ready for uh, the kind of work that God is calling us to. And so we are waiting together in hope, as James has asked us to do, uh, working as though Christ will judge the nations. Because uh, the, the good news of the judge, we say it in the creed every time we say the Apostles' Creed, that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead. Uh, the, the good news, we always celebrate that Christ has, will judge death once and for all and evil and it will be destroyed. And so that's why we have hope and we talk about, you know, heaven and being able to be re- reunited with those that have gone on to be with the Lord that we, we haven't seen because they've departed and now they're part of the church triumphant. So we long for that day and we look for that day, but we also remember that Christ will judge all evil, all things that have been contrary to his will. So Christ will judge my greed and my, uh, my heart when it's overly uh, sluggish and it's not established and it's not lean and ready to go. And so this, this is what makes the season of Advent kind of like a training season. We, we're like athletes and we are training for the coming of the Lord. We're, we're training our hearts. We're strengthening our hearts by reading scripture together. We're training our hearts by singing together. We're training our hearts by letting our kids tell the story of Mary and invite them to imagine what would it have been like and to watch their eyes light up as they talk about the Magi and the funny ways they tell the stories. And we're establishing our hearts when we feed the poor. We're establishing our hearts when we visit people in the hospital or those who are shut in. We're establishing our hearts when we reach out to those who are in prison who uh, don't have hope. We're establishing our hearts when we reach out to people that are struggling. These are all ways that we establish our hearts as Christians, that we train like athletes. And when we look at our hearts, that we desire is never the problem, right? We talk about that all the time. Uh, we, we, we love the fact that we are a desirous people. You know, it's not a problem. That Tiffany's has a luxury advent calendar is not the problem. You know, that we desire things is not the problem. It's just that we're misguided so often, you know, and our culture is so misguided and so impatient. And so it's not that we desire, it's what we desire that becomes the challenge. So as we, we want to direct our hearts to desire the right things. We don't want to suppress our desires and say, oh, no, don't desire that. You shouldn't want. No, we, we want to desire. But the greatest thing we could ever desire is Christ himself. And so we want our desire to increase, but we just want to direct those desires as something that is worthy of all that is inside of us. And training is necessary to make this adjustment. Establishing and strengthening our hearts is like preparing the soil. Uh, It's like preparing the soil as we wait for God to make it grow. And so a question for us as a church, as a community, this Advent season is how will we establish our hearts? What will it look like this year for these 20 some odd days to establish our hearts in light of the presence of God? Because we know that we wait for and trust in and hope in a glorious end. That one day that God will make everything right. Every single thing. And we look forward to that day. That is something that is worth waiting for, that is worth anticipating. And in that day, we won't have to hope anymore. We won't have to wait anymore. We won't have to be patient anymore because everything that we've ever longed for will have arrived in the fullness of Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father and the Holy Spirit. And so, until that day, may we wait together. May we establish our hearts 
for the Lord is at hand. Amen.